Hey, how are you doing? Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available. Bumper Christmas Annual 2017 for Christmas Eve 2017 with me, Daniel Ruiz Tyson, episode 200. I hope you're all well, keeping on doing what you need to be doing to keep yourself going. You've gone as cheap as you can on the Christmas presents. It is time to put your feet up and forget for an hour or so the awkwardness coming your way on Christmas Day as your frugal gifts are opened. It's best, I find, in these uh, situations not to study the facial expressions of the uh, recipients. I always tell myself it's all going to be over for another year soon. Just Hang in there. Just hang in there. Yes, here we are. Well, here I am. I can never be sure if you guys are here with me. This often reminds me of the uh, live Roland Rat show I did in the uh, spring of 85 when just three people turned up. I think without being able to fall back on that painful experience, this show would have been dead a long time ago. Anyway, I am hoping some of you hung around for this. If it's not Christmas Eve, I'd say turn me off. This is a Christmas Eve show. If I could have worked in a self-destruct mechanism into this show, into this particular episode to uh, implode once Channel Christmas has finished for another year, I would have done that. So, uh, after the poor episode that was 199, the exhaustion of three jobs kicking in, let's see if I can turn out one last good show and have this uh, series bow out on a positive note. The uh, first thing to clear up, I suppose, an awkward moment. I think. Uh, Not as awkward as sitting in front of someone opening up the uh, cheap presents you've just handed them on Christmas Day, but it's certainly up there, I would say. Uh, Channel Christmas, the once-a-year-only Christmas Eve channel that appears magically at one minute past midnight on Christmas Eve before disappearing 24 hours later. I had said if I didn't get enough submissions, I'd uh, have to bin the idea. I'm working for the man, which uh, has absolutely wrecked me. It's just not compatible, certainly not, I think, at this stage of my life with writing. And, uh, you know, I am frazzled, absolutely frazzled. I've got the script I'm working on. I've got uh, two of these shows that I've been turning out every week since uh, the first week of October. Three shows, in fact, this week. And uh, I said if the submissions didn't come in, I couldn't make the Channel Christmas uh, thing work this year and I'd have to scrap it. You know, that would have been the sensible thing to do. Well, they didn't quite come in. Uh, Mickey Boyd without prompting, I should add. And, uh, you know, in a gesture that was appreciated, he put a few call outs on Twitter. But once I saw in his tweet that it had gone out to listeners that were already contributing to uh, my podcast work five, six years ago, Once I saw that, I thought, my audience, it just really hasn't grown at all. And uh, at that point, I knew we wouldn't get a full channel Christmas listings. The uh, regression of this show has been staggering from live radio, from live bumper Christmas annuals with full channel Christmas listings and contributions to this year's below-par offerings, certainly on the channel Christmas front. Uh, That's a regression Ideally, that needs to be arrested. You know, downloads have been down this year, though admittedly the shows have been far shorter uh, this winter. But rather than give up altogether, 
and I'm showing you the fight that I still have left in me. I thought I'd go for a compromise. I thought I'd go out with what I got from you guys, kind enough to give you time to thinking up submissions. But uh, there's not enough content, and this is where the compromise comes in. I just don't have the time this year to pull it all together. So throughout the show, what I'm going to do, I'm going to dip in and out of uh, Channel Christmas. I'm going to pick out your choices, and that will have to be it for this year. There'll be no running times. There'll be no uh, this starts at this time, finishes at this time. I don't think I need to apologize for that. I've done my best, and so have you guys. And for that, I thank you. And uh, I'll think outside the box, or I'll try to, to see if we can come up with something. But years from now, when I'm in that care home telling the final friends of my life about this show, I'll be able to say the 2017 Bumper Christmas Annual, it was slightly different. It wasn't really bumper. Maybe it was bumperish. It retained the bumperish aspect, I'll be saying to them. Let's uh, move on with the show. I'd had a call from the dentist on Tuesday morning asking if I could make my hygienist appointment half an hour early. That was just before episode 199 went out. I was uh, penciled in for a 1900 hours appointment. I had episode 199 to edit on Tuesday night. So I thought, yeah, that makes sense. I can get home half an hour earlier. I got to the dentist with five minutes to spare, a 75-minute journey on the 87 bus from Millbank. I got there, I pressed the uh, buzzer, no one came out. I waited a minute. Still no one came out. I pressed it again. Nothing. I waited another three minutes. And then I thought, I'm just going to have to ring them. I was determined to get my full half hour's worth. Also, I grew up in that era of NHS dentists. and uh, Private dentists are expensive. They do overcharge. But having done both, I think NHS dentistry is so bad. It is so bad that I think it's worth paying the extra for a private dentist. Um, yeah, those guys, I mean, they're, you know, they're like private landlords, really. They do screw you. But unlike private landlords, you do get something for your money. So um, I was uh, outside the surgery and, uh, you know, I was keen to get my full half hour because, you know, when I go in, say, for a hygienist appointment and I always note the time when they call me in and if I come out and it's 25 minutes that I've just been in there for but I know that I'm being charged the full 30 minutes that really does annoy me as I was calling the dentist I uh, on my phone I stood outside their door on the phone the dentist I saw him hurrying out he went to answer the phone rather than opening the door and uh, I tried to gesture through the door with a range of hand movements like some really crap version of Lionel Blair on Give Us a Clue, you know, gesturing frantically, one for older listeners there. Um, I was gesturing that it was me calling, and uh, I hung up, and the dentist looked, uh, he looked baffled, and then uh, he opened the door to me after seeing me, and uh, and then this moment took me aback when uh, the dentist opened the door to me. He said, sorry, David, the hygienist is doing my teeth. I thought I'd grab her quickly before your appointment. I hope you don't mind. We'll be another 10 minutes in there. And uh, I thought, what can I do in this situation? Now, you, there's nothing you can do. What are you going to say? Well, actually... You called me this morning. You said 6.30, I'm here. Let me have my appointment now. It uh, it did frustrate me because I'd left the man's earlier to make that mad cross-town dash only to have the dentist uh, jump in on my time slot. After he was done, we had a few minutes talking while the hygienist got ready for me. You look tired, stressed and underweight, David, he said. I didn't disagree with the first two. On the weight, I always think that I need to lose weight, but everyone tells me I need to put weight on. 
I'm always paranoid about carrying extra pounds after spending some of the uh, mid-noughties carrying extra timber. Owens are falling back on uh, pastries and the cafe as a means of coping with losing my parents. Counselling, pastries, rhinoplasty and writing. That carried me through that period. That is the way I dealt with my losses. Just uh, the writing these days. Uh, I wish I could do the pastries. Um, the last 25 episodes, I think, and the winter with a man have uh, at times threatened to bring the counselling back. The hygienist, I'm not a dentist, but I think you can tell with anything, whether it's a barber, it's a dentist, once you've experienced what a good one is like, you know when the standards dropped off with the next one. The last hygienist I had was magnificent, one of the best people I've ever met at being brilliant at their job. She was Botoxed to within an inch of her life. And uh, initially we didn't get on brilliantly. And, uh, you know, she could be very opinionated, uh, always in the realms of dentistry. And uh, I would give it back. So it was the first few appointments uh, were at times rather awkward. But then we came to some sort of understanding where we both understood that uh, we were both going to be giving our opinions. And I think we got on in the end. And I just really admired her skills. She was so good at what she was doing. And uh, as I say, Botox to within an inch of her life. Sometimes I felt that the way she moved my mouth around was her in some way compensating for the lack of movement surgery had cost her own mouth. And she was so thorough, she'd floss me, she'd go in with the interdentals, we'd debate the effectiveness of the TP interdental brush family. She was absolutely phenomenal, seriously. So uh, I was very disappointed to see her go. This new hygienist was much younger and struck me as rather ineffective. To the left, to the left, she kept saying to me to get me to turn my head uh, to the left. We struggled to get my head at the right height for her as I lay on the dental couch. I had echoes of the hairdresser at the Victoria Salon almost four years ago, now struggling with what she infamously termed as my bulbous back of the head. Uh, Something you can read in my book, still available on Amazon, Me, Me, Me. There is a story uh, about that uh, bulbous back of the head remark at the uh, salon. And uh, I thought, any moment now, this hygienist is going to remark on the size of my head. The whole to the left of the left thing, it would have concerned me far less if she'd also uh, said to the right to the right. She just seemed to be doing a lot more work on the left. That concerned me. And uh, I kept hearing the wheels of her seat going round as she worked her way around my head, like she was travelling around my skull, like it was a day out for her. It was taking so long to get that chair to go around my skull. She had one of those, uh, you know, very cheap uh, typist chairs that you get when you're about 13 or 14 and, and, uh, you know, you've decided to get a desk in your room. Or, in my case, given I never had a room, uh, crowbar in a desk into the one room that your family have and uh, bringing along, I think it was a red typist chair from Argos. And uh, that was a back-breaking chair. That and the Z-bed. I think, between them, absolutely wrecked my back. So I kept hearing the wheels of her seat going round as she worked her way around my head. And uh, Botox hygienist would just sit still in her chair. You would never hear the wheels of her chair. And I'm guessing that she used the same chair. She didn't need to move around, so why did her successor? I do have a problem going forward. I don't think I'd like to see this hygienist again. 
I know that my dentist sometimes does hygiene appointments and I think I'll need to find a way to see him to clean my teeth rather than this girl. Sure, she might improve, but uh, I don't want to be giving away my hard-earned money while she learns her craft. That's, uh, that's for sure. Let's start taking a look at your channel Christmas submissions now. Uh, BBC Radio Nottingham regular. I'm assuming Jason has now left his ensuite bathroom days behind. Uh, he kicks off our uh, channel Christmas this year. Billy Two Rivers Nine says, A little-known film from the late 80s called North Shore for me, please, Daniel. An engaging, light-hearted tale of a novice surfer looking to make good in Hawaii. Killer 80s theme tune to boot. So in keeping with Channel Christmas, we do often uh, get selections. Uh, that's been the case over the years of shows that uh, on the surface don't feel very Christmassy. But often I think you see something on Christmas Eve if uh, if you are watching television on Christmas Eve, that may not be very festive in the way that it looks, but it's so good. You've never heard of it before. You didn't even know it was on. You've got the TV on. You've caught it from the beginning, and you think, wow, that was really good. And as the future Christmases come and go, you tend to remember this one program. You tend to remember that you saw it on Christmas Eve. And you think, wow, that was good. You get very nostalgic about that program. For me, I suppose Christmas 91, Christmas Eve 91, one of the best films I've seen to this day. Kevin Costner's No Way Out. That was on Christmas Eve on the BBC. I'd never heard of it. I think it was a remake, wasn't it? I'd never heard of the original film. That film was outstanding. Had a number of uh, brilliant chase scenes in it as well. You know, Kevin Costner being pursued by some bad guys. And there's a scene in there when he's being pursued by some guys in a shopping mall and he slides down the banisters of some escalator and, uh, you know, he's got the big shiny floor of the shopping mall. People are looking, he's getting all that attention. That was one of my fantasies as a kid, was to go shoplifting in a department store and being pursued by people. I think it's a great, great visual. Um, I've mentioned that on this show before. Uh, thank you, Jason, uh, for your submission. That's North Shore. That's the uh, first Channel Christmas 2017 submission of this year. Uh, Mickey Boyd, is there some room for some Jack Hargreaves? Uh, Mickey tweeted, I'll have an out of town from Christmas 1968 where Jack Hargreaves shows you how to whittle a blackthorn branch into a cudgel and proceeds to demonstrate its use on his producer and sound man. It's uh, 30 minutes long and uh, Mickey had uh, uh, wanted a very early morning slot, 0900 hours to 9.30 hours. I vaguely remember Jack Hargreaves, I think, from How but uh, certainly don't remember anywhere near as much about him as Mickey. And uh, I think this is a strong submission from the modern man. Uh, I did some Googling on uh, Jack Hargreaves uh, just to fill you in. In case, like me, you weren't that aware of him. He is remembered, as I say, for appearing on How. That was a kid's program with the brilliant Fred Dynage, and uh, which I didn't know actually Jack Hargreaves had conceived. It was his... Uh, idea. It ran 15 years from 1966 on the old Southern television and it was networked on ITV until the uh, demise of Southern in 81. I think it was later remade with a gas top, I think at some point in the 90s. Also well known as the gentle voice presenter, this is Jack Hargreaves of the weekly magazine program Out of Town, Mickey's Choice. Uh, Out of Town first broadcast in 1960, following the success of his series Gone Fishing uh, the uh, year before that. It was a, a Friday evening show taken up by many of the other ITV regions, usually in, a, in a, a Sunday afternoon slot, which is when the modern man would have been watching, I assume. 
Mickey also uh, wants, uh, I'll have Scrooge to the great modern New York-based Christmas Carol tale from uh, 06.30 hours to 8pm. I'm going to have to Google that. I should have Googled that. Um, I think this is a a well-known film, isn't it? But I have no idea who's in it. I'm sure that I have seen posters uh, for this. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I thought it was that guy, Bill Murray, a wildly successful television executive whose cold ambition and curmudgeonly nature has driven away the love of his life, played by uh, Karen Allen. Um, He fires a staff member on Christmas Eve, and then he is visited by a series of ghosts who give him a chance to re-evaluate his actions and right the wrongs of the past. Thank you, Jason and uh, Mickey. More channel Christmas throughout the show. You might be able to hear that I have uh, fallen sick again. I, I do, honestly, I think it's uh, I think it's the man. I really do. It's been a, a brutal winter, it really has. The night nurse didn't knock me out for long last night. I should have taken some Neurofen Plus. I have taken some Neurofen Plus this morning before recording. I, of course, given my uh, issues with the voice over the last uh, year, I shouldn't be taking the Neurofen Plus, but uh, I do need to numb this uh, sore throat. I've got the uh, right eye twitch back, a sure sign that I'm stressed. The right temple has been twitching too. Not throbbing, but twitching. And, uh, you know, sometimes I don't mind a twitch, um, but I find it pretty annoying up in that uh, area. I'd have been okay if the man was the only thing I did, but I suppose the exhaustion comes in from everything else that I'm still trying to do. I think there's only been one day job that I've had that extended me more physically and mentally than the current place. And that's the startup where I met Clay Lowe, a.k.a. Soul Cruiser, seven years ago now. That place, it was a startup, it was badly run. That was worse, I don't forget that. But uh, this, in terms of levels of work, in terms of the complexity of the work, the intensity of the work and uh, you know waking up during the night worrying about it this is the closest I've come I think to uh, the life-changing events of Christmas 2010 and uh, I'm conscious that uh, I made so many mistakes during that period down to exhaustion down to working too much I've got uh, four days off over Christmas two are going into making this episode so then I've got uh, Christmas day and boxing day then I'm back at the man's and uh, I know that that is not enough of a break. I'd like to get some time off during January, but uh, with the amount of work there is in that place and the amount of changes on my team, I don't think that's going to be possible. So uh, it's a real concern for me because uh, principally I'd like to take the time off to finish that script. Until I finish that script, I'm living this duality, these two existences You know, the podcast that finishes today, okay, so I'm back down to the two things. The man, the writing, um, it's still one too many. I need to finish that script. I don't know when that's going to be possible. Brighter news, I managed to skip the work Christmas do. And uh, being so drained this winter, I think in terms of finding a facial expression as the teams left the do while I stayed behind in the office, I don't think I had to worry too much. You know, I didn't want to overdo it. I didn't want to look like I wanted to go because I didn't want to go. So I didn't want to overdo the facial expression. The uh, poker face came naturally to me. Plus, also, I've got the booth. You know, I work in a booth. 
I just got my head down and uh, I focused on trying to make it to my dentist appointment in West London that evening in time, which, uh, of course, as I uh, said earlier, is not uh, an easy journey. I got the impression, and, uh, you know, we've all done it. You're in a group of people, you sometimes, you know, because you can't think of anything to talk about, uh, you know, you, you, you've got to come up with some small talk, and often you will use maybe uh, the colleague, the person that isn't there as the subject of your small talk. You will talk about them, you know, the pluses, the minuses. You'll try to gauge the other person's experience of dealing with that person. And this was something that had never been mentioned to me before, and it was an incident that happened in the old building, so it's about two or three months old, and no one had ever mentioned it to me. But I think this might have been a topic of conversation at the Christmas do I didn't attend, and that was the time uh, when uh, a colleague took it rather badly. It wasn't meant to uh, offend. I thought that... um, I got on well enough with that colleague to be able to say this, otherwise I wouldn't have said it. But, uh, you know, when I said that uh, they were always bringing cakes and biscuits and so on and so forth at the old building and they would leave them on top of a shelf that had so much foot flow, it was where everyone gathered to uh, return documents that they'd been working on. So there was always someone there and the cakes or biscuits, whatever, would be on top of the shelf. The shelf, you know, would come up to about chest height, so you'd be breathing on this stuff. And uh, I had mentioned uh, that to this colleague. Initially, they hadn't reacted well. They must have told one or two people uh, close to them at the man's as uh, they fretted on uh, pulling me up about it, which they did uh, the following day. But uh, then that must have gone round. And uh, I became aware on the Wednesday morning that uh, this story seemed to have been circulated the day before. And uh, someone said, you know, you shouldn't impose your views on people, uh, which is, you know, not an unreasonable argument. Um, I thought my point was a a fair and accurate one. And I wouldn't have said it had Uh, I thought that this person was initially going to react badly. For what it's worth, they had said the following day that, yes, they agreed with me and uh, it was something that hadn't crossed their mind before, but they wouldn't do it again. You know, it's... It was an interesting conversation to have with a person. You know, I'm I'm big on hygiene. I like hygiene. It's important to me. At the same time, I recognise that I need to scale things back, but not something like that. I stand by that. But it was interesting to me that uh, that story seemed to have gotten round... You're listening to Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available bumper Christmas annual podcast 2017 with me, Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Uh, let's uh, move on. I've got a note here. Cyclists. This is something that I've been thinking about. Uh, cyclists. Now, uh, as a pedestrian in London, I don't know what the rest of the country is like, but as a pedestrian in London, the uh, post-millennium rise of the cyclists um, has left our city uh, as much overrun by cyclists as it is cars, I feel. You know, as a pedestrian, I do feel that we are forgotten. And, you know, learning how to walk, that's the first thing that man did when he began to... uh, impose himself on this world you know they stood upright they learned how to walk and I do feel that the pedestrian is forgotten so many of the roads that I've walked through all my life now have cycling pathways and uh, you know pedestrians have their own pathways that I deal with I think in some instances 
those cycling paths are justified, you know, because the pavements were always too wide. I'm thinking, you know, um, up uh, towards Vauxhall, pedestrians. If you were to weigh it up on balance, they've got that maybe just about right. I still feel that too much of that was maybe given to cyclists. But, you know, there are worse cycling paths than that. In other instances, it is ridiculous how much of a pavement has been given over to cyclists. And it reinforces my view that this city has just given cyclists too much. Because just as there are so many bad drivers out there, there are a growing number of crap cyclists on London's roads, especially at the weekends. A growing bugbear in Lambeth, for me, is the number of already narrow pavements that have been made narrower still with the arrival of Santander docking station. South Lambeth Road is really bad for that, especially... I think right by the new Keybridge House development, which I think is going to be the tallest brick residential tower uh, either in London or the country, which looks hideous. But I have to say my initial thoughts are that it doesn't look as hideous as the other developments that have sprung up in the area. And when I see docking stations on our streets, it just strikes me that every other road in London seems to want a bit of Santander docking station action. It's almost like the docking station is the equivalent of the uh, tattoo sleeve for our streets. My observation, though, is not actually to do with that. It's to do with the fact that you don't see old cyclists on our roads. You don't. I think that's a fact. I don't recall seeing pensioners on bikes. So here's what I'm wondering. Do cyclists have a limited shelf life physically? And are we not aware of this yet because the first generation of cyclists to take to the roads en masse post-millennium are either my age or just a bit older? So we've not seen that yet. We're about 15, 20 years from that being a problem for this generation of cyclists. And just as I'm concerned about when I might have to stop living on top floors, which I've done my entire life because I can no longer get up the stairs, and just as I fret about how I'm going to get my shopping home in my final years when the strength has gone from my arms and I'm desperately trying not to put my shopping bags on the ground as I wait for my bus, what are old cyclists going to do when they get old? How are they going to get about when they can no longer cycle? Is there a cut-off point? Do these cyclists also drive? Will they take to their cars or will they start getting buses as well? Are they thinking about it? Are any cyclists thinking about this? You know, are they getting on their bikes and feeling aches and pains and thinking, oh, I haven't got long left on this? That's an interesting one, I think. Monsieur Bucket, our friend in France, he emailed in with his channel Christmas submissions. Hey, Davey, how are you and your red nose doing? Uh, the nose is not so red. Uh, today, thankfully, Monsieur, but uh, certainly under the weather. Nearly 200 episodes. Our friend in France uh, continues. What an effort you've put in these last weeks and days. Thank you. May I be so bold as to offer the following suggestion for Channel Christmas. 1970 Christmas Day episode of On the Buses. It's called Christmas Duty. Running time, 25 minutes. And uh, his scheduling preference was for 1830 hours or 1900 Hours. Another suggestion for Channel Christmas for a long-suffering podcaster of SW89, Postman Pat's Magic Christmas original transmission date was Christmas Day 2003. It's uh, 30 minutes long and uh, Monsieur Bucket was looking for a, a 1000 hours uh, scheduling. 
Was this, uh, I think this was the remake of Postman Pat. There we have a police siren. You might be able to hear that. That took a while to come. We're about 30 minutes into the bumper Christmas annual. Yeah, 2003. I think that, that would have been when Postman Pat was remade. I wonder if that looked any different. But uh, yeah, sure. Let's chuck uh, Postman Pat in there. Wishing you a peaceful Christmas. May 2018 bring you serenity. Shoulders back. Take care. Monsieur Bucket. Merry Christmas to you as well, uh, Monsieur Bucket. In uh, some positive news, the uh, Housing uh, Association standoff uh, for Spanish car news heating, that was resolved to an extent with no end of uh, Twitter DMs. I don't think that the heating in the front room is working properly as it should, but uh, we'll take that up in the uh, new year. And, uh, you know, that was such a, a drain. That was such a... A difficult thing to resolve you know first and foremost it is a housing association that is just run badly as I think most housing associations are you know I've lived in housing association flats I think they're worse than councils these days I really do that's my experience of them I still stand by what I said this would have been resolved far easier if my uh, aunt and uncle could speak English if they could have argued their corner there with the workman every time the workman turned up this could have been sorted out by them you can't have as the space daddy said to me when i saw him yesterday and i was talking through the situation you can't have ghettos you know you can't have communities like that communities shouldn't be insular you live in another country you need to get to grips with the language you need to be able to uh, express yourself so uh, i'll pick that up again in the uh, new year because that front room heater definitely isn't working uh, properly. I'm pleased that it's resolved my aunt and uncle. I just wish that they could understand the frustration that those of us around them feel when we're trying to sort things out for them. I'm stuck with a man doing an incredibly stressful and serious job in a, an environment I shouldn't be in. Every day is a challenge there. I'm surrounded by bosses whose parents weren't even dating when I was a choir boy back in the early to mid-80s, winning carol competitions with my class, ping a ping pang pong and all that. And on top of that, I've got to deal with stuff like this. My dad, who, as I said, uh, had a good run at conquering the English language, I never forgot that he said that being in a foreign country meant you lost 70% of your personality. And my dad was a very expressive character, you know. He was like Mick Jagger, constantly needing to move his arms to make his points. But uh, my aunt and uncle, you know, I love them both dearly, but uh, they just never had that inclination to try and learn English. And there are so many Spanish people that I grew up with that I know like that and they're all in their 70s and 80s now the ones that didn't go home the ones the few that are still here and uh, you can't function like that by the way there is a, a very very good flamenco documentary on the BBC I play some flamenco I don't mind some I just think it's an absolute racket I grew up in a house that uh, Thankfully, we weren't a very musical house, but when my parents played music, it was absolutely horrendous. But uh, it's really interesting because, you know, my parents came from, uh, you know, gypsy country. And uh, there was definitely gypsy blood, certainly on my dad's side of the family. To see this documentary, I think it could have been a bit better, but it's, uh, it's a nice entry point. And, uh, you know, they visit Cadiz, Seville, Granada. You know, I've been to Granada. It's a beautiful place. And it's a good hour of your time. It is very uh, interesting. Uh, on that, although I grew up in a house where there wasn't a lot of music, my younger sibling had the best musical taste. 
But I also remembered recently that even among my English friends, I know that, uh, you know, the Brits are obsessed with things like the Beatles and the Stones, you know, two bands that I've never really liked, though I can appreciate the, the body of work that the Beatles put together before they were 30, particularly the, the final chunk of their career where there was, uh, you know, the output was astonishing. My English friends... They did not listen to the Beatles. That was uh, something that I uh, recall the other day. It wasn't the Beatles or the Stones that they were listening to. In fact, uh, if anything, those guys were into the sort of 70s rock bands, you know, the Led Zeppelins, uh, those kind of bands. But uh, they certainly weren't into the 60s stuff. Moving on, I'm going to have to pause the show uh, in a moment because uh, it's going to be such a long show. Uh, the files are going to be too big to transfer over. So uh, I'm going to try and do this show in 40 minute chunks. Uh, Jason Cobb tweeted me a photo he'd taken of the new Stockwell Continental Pizzeria mentioned in episode 198. On uh, Wednesday morning, I was walking towards the CAF at about 07.30 hours. It was uh, dark, but those guys were already in there at uh, that time of the morning, working away, rushing to get it open, I'm assuming, before uh, Christmas Eve, uh, there was a note on their window mentioning the guys behind it, you know, what, what else they've done in the area. And uh, this was the note that Jason uh, Cobb uh, tagged me in on his uh, tweet. These are the guys behind the uh, reinvention of the Canton Arms. Now the Canton, of course, I'm assuming they felt the longer original name was too uncool to keep. I used to drink in the Canton a lot in the uh, mid to late 90s. For me and uh, for many locals, those guys killed the Canton Arms. You know, you can't get a pint in there now for under four pounds. And uh, the notice for the new Continental Place talks about offering sourdough bread, which, you know, it's a nice bread. I'm not saying it's not, but as soon as I hear sourdough bread, I walk the other way. The South London wank, it is simply uh, overwhelming. Uh, Let's move on to Jason's uh, channel Christmas submission. Uh, If it's not too late, he tweeted, uh, would uh, channel Christmas be able to broadcast Chaz and Dave's Christmas knees up a post-lunch afternoon slot of uh, 1,600 hours would be perfect. Let um, Let me see if I can Google that. I remember Chaz and Dave, I think they were on Robbie Vincent's late night LBC show some point in the late 90s, which I used to listen to religiously throughout uh, the late 80s and um, throughout the 90s. Okay, here we go. Sorry, uh, Chaz and Dave, Christmas knees up coming up. And I think either both Chaz and Dave were on one night with um, Robbie Vincent or one of them was, but they'd had a bunch of equipment nicked. Nicked? What am I? Why am I using the word nicked? When was the last time I used the word nicked? Stolen? What's happening to me? I think when I get stressed, I do go South London. And, uh, yeah, they were putting out uh, a plea live on air for the return of their equipment, and I think they were offering a reward as well. Chaz and Dave's Christmas Knees Up, released 22nd of October 2001, genre jazz. We'll chuck that in for Jason. Uh, Thank you uh, for your selection, uh, Jason, and uh, Merry Christmas. I'll tell you what, before I pause this first chunk of the show, I'll give you my contribution to this year's uh, admittedly slightly vague channel Christmas. Dean Spanley with Sam Neill. Now, originally when I chose this, I didn't think it was specifically a Christmas film, but having checked the posters, actually I do think it is, and uh, I saw it on television just before Christmas 2011, and it might be available on Netflix now. It might be. I think it's a really underrated film. It's a really poignant film. 
and it's uh, set in uh, Edwardian England and uh, the blurb I think on IMDB uh, is set in Edwardian England where upper lips are always stiff and men from the colonies are not entirely to be trusted actually does that give you enough let me just move on to the uh, Wikipedia breakdown. Uh, Wikipedia says a surreal period comedic tale of canine reincarnation exploring the relationships between father and son and master and dog. It's set in the very early 1900s. Henslow Fisk lives beholden to his father, the difficult Horatio Fisk. The Fisk family has suffered first the loss of its youngest son, Harrington Fisk, killed in the Second Anglo-Boer War, shortly followed by the death of Horatio's wife. Fisk Sr. is looked after by his housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Brimley, who has lost her husband. Fisk Jr. reluctantly visits his father every Thursday. One day, trying to entertain his father, Fisk Jr. takes him to a by a visiting Swami, played by Art Malik, about the transmigration of souls. The lecture is also attended by the new local clergyman, Dean Spanley, and that's played by Sam Neill. Later the same day, Fisk Jr. encounters the Dean at his father's club. A chance third meeting leads to an introduction. Fisk Jr., initially intrigued by the Dean's oddly open-minded views on reincarnation, is prompted to look beyond the Dean's appearance, that of an affable, rather bland clergyman, by his weakness for certain peculiar sensations produced Produced by Hungarian Imperial Toke wine, which leads him into a dreamlike state. Working with his clever friend Rather, played by Brian Brown, some of you may know him from the Thornbirds, an Australian conveyancer, Fisk secures a batch of Toke and the two entertain uh, Sam Neill's character, who acts ever more strangely and uh, starts to reveal memories of his previous life as a Welsh spaniel. There you have it. And uh, the memories are very acute. They're very convincing, uh, including rich feelings around food and communication with other canines, a deep distaste for cats and pigs, and uh, a love for the joy of serving his master. And uh, as the film unfolds, Fisk Jr. comes to understand his father's background better, and the two become closer. And uh, it is a beautiful film. It really is. When I was thinking about the Bump of Christmas annual as far back as October, I thought... I'm putting this in for myself. This is going to be my choice for Channel Christmas. Ya llegó la Navidad. Qué feliz siente el alma. Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available. Bumper Christmas Annual 2017, the 200th episode. I've had my third instant coffee of the morning uh, during that little pause as I uploaded the uh, first uh, large file onto uh, the laptop. I think that first third, it might be, of this... uh, Bumper Christmas Annual. I think that with that, I have already buried the memory of just how bad episode 199 was. I think uh, that justifies me doing this episode. Um, Let's move on to um, the next channel Christmas submission. I think I'm going to enjoy this next bit. This uh, came from John 
Horsley, hello. I know that it's not in the spirit of things, but after suggesting Atlanta last year, which was not Christmassy, but my favourite show of 2016, can I have an hour of Patriot from Amazon, which is nowhere near as good as Atlanta, but it's probably my favourite thing this year. Um, I had to read up on this again. I wasn't uh, aware of this show. I think... Am I right in saying that Amazon's TV stuff is better than Netflix's? I do think that with Netflix, you have to look long and hard to find some interesting stuff. I'm not yet fully convinced uh, by Netflix. A patriot uh, to prevent Iran from going nuclear, intelligence officer John Tavner must forego all safety nets and assume a perilous non-official cover, that of a mid-level employee at a Midwestern industrial piping firm. Failing that, adds John, the Kid Cop Christmas special, the second one, when the characters had really bedded in and it didn't just feel like a novelty. Well, given... That uh, this year channel Christmas owing to uh, time constraints is different. You can have whatever you want, John. So uh, we're going to give you Kid Cop as well, the 1981 uh, Christmas special. And John has really taken me back with this. 81, Christmas 81, offset a difficult time for me personally. As I've said over the years, my parents were essentially together for almost two decades. A 20-year divorce punctuated by three trial marriages. All we saw in the bedsit uh, was arguments, apart from the uh, Christmases of 81, 83. I think 83 was when my dad, aware of my fascination with facial hair, even uh, by then, uh, also grew a beard for me. And I watched with great interest as his features changed. So uh, I think my early fascination with facial hair started... Well, it didn't start. It started with a $6 million man when Lee Majors grew a moustache for the final year of that show in the late 70s. And I got that Play-Doh barbershop. And I think the next step from that was for my dad to grow a beard so I could watch his face change. And I did watch with great interest uh, that Christmas. Then there was the spring of 87. That was the last trial marriage. So, you know, these trial marriages were terrible periods. You know, the calm before the storm. You always knew that the first argument was going to be something massive. It was very uncomfortable for me and my sibling. I was fortunate during that time that I was often in New York filming Kid Cop. And at the Christmas 81 Kid Cop special shown on Christmas Eve on ITV at 2100 hours. That's the thing that people forget. Kid Cop was an ITV show. ITV at the time was very courageous with their programming. They had obviously all the Granada stuff, you know, during the 80s, Granada was absolutely brilliant uh, with its costume dramas. You know, Hill Street Blues was an ITV show. I think, was it Lou Grant was an ITV show. Quincy, you know, they were big on showing American dramas, um, you know, in the uh, 2100 hours slot. And uh, Kid Cop was uh, the latest edition. The chin would never hang around for the uh, Kid Cop uh, shows, you know, as soon as Des O'Connor will strike it lucky was over, that was it. The TV came off in his house. By the way, I saw the chin a couple of days ago, I think for the first time in about 18 months. Like his idol, Des O'Connor, he's had a, another child uh, late in life. That guy is very fertile. So the Kid Cop Christmas 81 special, Jared Martin, an early and sadly overlooked star of early Kid Cop. I think his work on early Dallas Asuelan's lover, Dusty Farlow, overshadowed what I feel was better work that he did on Kid Cop. Jared Martin was a fine actor, retired from acting far too early, I feel, in 94. 
uh, Kidcock fans, early Kidcock fans, that is, will recall that there was a blossoming relationship between Jared Martin's Detective Jones and Victoria Principal's character. Of course, this was the era of Rutger Hauer, who played the mysterious professor who in the uh, May 1980 Kidcock pilot had stolen the young Danny Smith character played by myself from his wealthy family in Gibraltar. The pilot episode was called Crumbling Rock. Charlene Tilton, who also played Lucy, the Poison Dwarf. Was it the Poison Dwarf? Was that her nickname given to her by Wogan? Uh, She played Lucy in Dallas, but she also played my sister, my older sister, in Crumbling Rock. Howard's character would steal gifted children and sell them on to uh, wealthy families unable to have children of their own, and somehow, admittedly, with plots that don't really stand up too well these days, eight-year-old Danny J. Smith, let's not forget the J, uh, ended up being a New York uh, cop. So the second series of Kid Cop, which had survived cancellation in 1980, um, you know, had the show um, launched maybe a decade later, it would have been cancelled after that first year. The second series had this blossoming relationship between Jared Martin and Victoria Principal, which caused a few problems with my character. Howard's character, meantime, is trying to get Danny Smith back before my character blew the whistle on his entire gifted child racket. Jared Martin and Victoria Principal have by now become aware of Howard's curious interest in Smith. Howard's appearances in Series 2 have been sporadic because he was filming Blade Runner at the time, and uh, he appeared in 14 of that year's 22 episodes. But all his appearances were filmed in the space of just six weeks which uh, did cause huge difficulties for the writers that year and um, I don't know if you remember in 88 when Leslie Grantham first left EastEnders famously um, I think he hung around for another seven or eight months on the show but he'd actually filmed all his appearances which were plenty I think he was in prison by then his character and all the prison scenes were filmed in just a matter of weeks so by the time his character was finally written out seven or eight months later he'd already been gone for about six months and it is thought that EastEnders writers have borrowed the idea for that period with Leslie Grantham from uh, Kid Cop Series 2 and uh, Brooke Howard's uh, busy schedule at the time. You know, logistically, it was a nightmare. But uh, certainly, EastEnders learned from how Kid Cop had uh, handled Howard's uh, shooting schedule. Now, Howard gets involved in a shootout with Jared Martin the day after Jared had proposed to Victoria Principal, and she had said rather disappointingly for him that she needed to think about it. And uh, Jared Martin is gone down on the steps of the station house. A very dramatic and moving Christmas episode indeed. Technically, that was episode 34 of Kid Cop, but there are those who claim it as episode 35 owing to the notorious 1980 Star Wars-esque Christmas special, a musical version of Kid Cop, and I think that's why John wasn't keen on having the uh, first uh, Kid Cop Christmas special as his uh, channel Christmas selection. Famously, Victoria Principal refused to appear in that first Christmas special. She wasn't happy with the idea. She wasn't thought to be a good singer, whereas at the time I had that falsetto, so I was able to adapt rather easily. And it's thought that her refusal to work on that first Christmas special later sowed the seeds of the problems between her and the show's producers who often found her very difficult to deal with. John wraps up his email with these kind words, when you say keep walking into the sun, it makes me feel a tiny bit better. Merry Christmas to you, John. I wasn't aware of the Star Wars Christmas special, even when I starred in the 1980 Kid Cop musical. 
I wasn't aware of it until EOPS on the live radio bumper Christmas annual of 2014 mentioned it in the studio that night when he submitted it as his channel Christmas selection that year. By the way, Jared Martin came to Kid Cop off the back of a short-lived sci-fi series that I loved as a very young boy. It was called The Fantastic Journey, made in 77 in the States, shown here in the UK in 78 or 79, uh, either of those Christmases, definitely. And uh, it was on every day for a couple of weeks. Such a big show for me that I asked my mum to make a costume modelled on Jared Martin's character in the show for my Superman doll to wear. You know, the Superman costume just came right off. And I remember my mum made this uh, white shirt and uh, black trousers for my Superman doll. My mum was a very gifted seamstress. The series concerns a family and their associates who charter a boat out into the Caribbean for a scientific expedition. And after an encounter in the area of the Bermuda Triangle with an unnatural green cloud, the group find themselves shipwrecked on a mysterious uncharted island from which they are unable to escape. Uh, This show aired at a time when uh, the interest, the country's interest, the USA's interest in the Bermuda Triangle, UFOs and fantasy was at a height. And uh, the cast encounter Varian, Varian, I'm not sure how you say it, initially disguised as an Arawak native, later revealed though to be from the year 2230. He's a 23rd century pacifist, musician and healer. That does sound a bit poncy. And uh, Varian, let's go with Varian, explains to the travellers that uh, like he and many before them, they have been caught in a space-time continuum where people from the past, present, future and from other worlds are trapped, coexisting on the island in a series of time zones. And the only way the characters can get home is via a place called Evoland, which lies far to the rising sun. That's not very useful. The only way to travel between time zones was via invisible gateways that instantaneously transported individuals or groups from one zone uh, to another And I think I must be travelling through these time zones when I'm going from my writing life to the man every day. I'm having no problem at all finding these time zones. Background to the show, NBC ordered 12 episodes to follow the revised pilot. Production ended early when it was apparent that the ratings were low. Uh, The time slot for the show was changed several times during its short run, but by its 10th episode its ratings had dropped and it was cancelled. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on. A a new homeless person sleeping outside the Nine Elms Monster in a Vauxhall. Remember uh, a few shows back I told you there were a couple of guys sharing a duvet. They got moved on. Now, um, I don't know whether these guys are immigrants and there's that crackdown at the moment, you know, on anybody who doesn't need to uh, be here or shouldn't be here. Uh, In inverted commas, they're getting uh, moved off the streets. We've got this new person now out there it was chucking it down the other morning and as i've said outside the entrance to the nine elms uh, monster that place went up um, so quickly you've got trucks coming in all day long out of the northern line extension next door to the nine elms monster so there's a bit of a dip in the ground the water collects there when there's heavy rain and you know this is the new Vauxhall this is the rebooted Vauxhall this is one of the most moneyed areas in the country now and it is shameful that uh, there are still homeless people on the streets in this area and you never actually used to see that there is a hostel, Graham House uh, on Bondway by a Vauxhall bus station that's been there for years but um, 
Even so, up until the last four or five years, I'd never seen people sleeping rough in the area. This city, you know, this city, it's, it's not a divide, I've said that before, it's a chasm now. It is a chasm. Anyone who says there is not a divide between rich and poor, I don't know what world that they're living in. I wish I was living in that world. I wish I was so comfortable that I was completely unaware of this. I can't get my head around it. Staying in Vauxhall uh, a moment longer. Uh, the bus station looks like it might be coming down. Um, if you want to know more details, you know, Jason Cobb on Twitter is a, uh, a fine journalist, does cover a lot of uh, local stories. And uh, George N. Turner, whose uh, housing website, I think it's called Our City, he does a lot of brilliant uh, local work. He was at the meeting the other night. My issue with Vauxhall Bus Station, I'm not the best informed person when it comes to architecture. I, I, you know, I don't mind the structure. My issue with it was always that in order to build this thing, I think it came up in 2004, 2005, they got rid of a lot of bus stops either side of it. So if you were walking southbound from Victoria, you know, because uh, there were no buses coming and you were just moving from bus stop to bus stop, say, and thought, well, if I see a bus, I'll get it at the next bus stop. They got rid of a couple of bus stops. And uh, also, at the, you know, just a bit earlier, I think 10 years earlier, maybe the uh, MI6 building was built. So I never thought that the idea to have this massive bus stop station where everyone would wait. I didn't think that was a great idea. And I have seen a lot of trouble there over the years on a Friday, Saturday night because the erection of the bus stop coincided with far more clubs coming into the area. So I don't think it's a massive disaster. I mean, personally, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily sad about it, but I will say this, it's there. It was working. It does work. You know, it's annoying in the sense that buses have to do this, you know, these ridiculous turns. They'll often go back on each other, their routes, just to get around the bus station. And that is really annoying. I never thought it was the best designed bus station but it's there and I think bringing it down is a really bad idea they're talking about the new bus stop being half the size and I think this is because they want to build a civic centre I might be right in this this is what I've been hearing for a year or so in Vauxhall they're determined to turn Vauxhall into something it's never been really it was always a bit of a wasteland it was a time zone if you like we're going to just uh, remind ourselves uh, about the fantastic journey. Actually, well, no, it didn't go into the channel Christmas. Maybe I should have said uh, I'm putting the fantastic journey into channel Christmas. But it was a bit of a divide between South London and Central London, I thought. That, for me, was what Vauxhall always was. Now they're trying to turn it into a proper little town, you know. So if you can say you live in Vauxhall, I've got this and that there. I've got all these coffee chains here. You know, all these things that weren't there before. For me... It's there. It's a mistake to bring it down. And also pollution-wise, you know, as someone who's been struggling with their asthma now and is getting a, a number of tests now in the new year because, you know, I've not been responding brilliantly to the new inhalers, this is the building work that's done this to me. I had never struggled. You know, I'd always been complacent about my asthma. In fact, I'd gone years without taking my inhalers. And uh, so we're now going to have a further escalation of the building site that is Vauxhall in order to um, knock down this thing that was just built just over a decade ago. It's a, it's a shocking decision by a shocking borough.
it's a borough that's never been run properly. You grow up in this borough as I did, you know, you just always shake your head with your friends. Eh, it's Lambeth. People always say that. It's Lambeth. You know, like, what can you do? You know, this is who these guys are. This is the decisions they make. This is a borough that hauled itself out to property developers. This is just one more bad decision uh, to follow the likes of George N. Turner, the likes of Jason Cobb, who do cover these stories far better uh, than I do for uh, the latest updates. Some more channel Christmas submissions now. Deepest dub in my house, apart from the obvious Wonderful Life and Die Hard, we always watch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Not festive at all, but a, a family tradition. Can we fit that in? Of course you can, Deepest dub. It feels like a late-night movie. He continues, so how about an early slot on Christmas Eve to catch those still up from Christmas Eve Eve? Thank you, and uh, Merry Christmas. The lovely Mr. William Stafford, copyright Mickey Boyd. William, uh, who uh, gave this show its first ever iTunes review. Little did I know that uh, five and a half years on, uh, there wouldn't be many more. On the Christmas channel begins uh, the lovely Mr. William Stafford. I would like to see the Rent-A-Ghost Christmas special from 1978 running uh, time 25 minutes. Played sometime in the afternoon before I am too drunk to appreciate it. Cheers. Uh, Merry Christmas uh, to Mr. William Stafford. Uh, May I say that Rent-A-Ghost is a typically William Stafford uh, choice and uh, his uh, contributions uh, to the shows have been much missed in recent years. Nice to have him back uh, briefly. Thank you and uh, Merry Christmas to you too. Higgs Boson won a former... Uh, toilet bingo winner on the old Please Don't Hug Me shows uh, back in the uh, golden era of 2010. Uh, can I schedule All Creatures Great and Small Christmas episode from 1978 for 1945 to 20.30 hours? Um, <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to complete the rest of his uh, tweet, but uh, thank you for that, All Creatures Great and Small. There's your submission. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. Pete Domican, going to be more festive this year. He begins and go for a Christmas Top of the Pops. Please feel free to choose any year that features a presenter that hasn't done time and edit to remove performers <laughs> who have. He made it hard for me, this one. This was a hard one to um, sort out for Pete. Now, I've done some YouTube and I think we're on safe ground with the 1984 Top of the Pops Christmas special. The only one I can see in the top ten who... May have been a, a problem, Mr. Glitter, so we won't include him in the top ten. Also, I noted that the show was presented by Paul Young, Holly Johnson and Lenny Henry uh, among the clips that I was able to find, so I think we're on safe ground there. Pete adds, I'm trying not to punish the listeners with World at War or an episode of Mrs. Brown's Boys. Uh, the charts that Christmas, Christmas 84, were brilliant, I think. You know, I'm very nostalgic about Christmas 84. I'll give you the top nine. We'll skip who was a uh, number 10 the top nine tears for fears shout though that band became very big for me with the seeds of love i love that album um the anthemic stuff shout everybody wants to rule the world you know i never liked that stuff you know songs that are going to be sung by audiences at big concerts i'd hate that if i was in a band i would hate to have an audience joining in you know i'm on the stage you listen to me i'm the singer I don't like that stuff. Uh, number eight, Paul Young, Everything Must Change. I think Paul Young was still around for another year or two, wasn't he, before uh, his career uh, tanked. Uh, Ray Parker Jr., Ghostbusters, number seven. Frankie goes to Hollywood. Uh, we're at number six with The Power of Love. I think one of the greatest ever songs never gets to number one. Did it get to number one? I don't think it did. And I think that is a brilliantly written song. I wasn't a fan of theirs. I mean, they owned 1984, those guys, with uh, Relax. 
and uh, Two Tribes. I never liked either of those songs. The Power of Love, completely different. A beautiful song. The line about the hooded claw, I think, is one of the best written songs in uh, pop up there with uh, New Order's Bizarre Love Triangle. Toy Dolls, Nelly the Elephant. I haven't thought about that song for years. I do remember that song now. I do remember it. Uh, Number four, Madonna, Like a Virgin. I liked the song at the time. I think Madonna was brilliant at that time. I was a big Madonna fan, but that wasn't uh, one of my favourite Madonna songs. A song I love. I, I stand by this to this day. Paul McCartney and the Frog Chorus, we all stand together. I love that song more than any of his Beatles work. I stand by that. Wham, Last Christmas, Everything She Wants. Was that the B-side or was it a joint A-side release? Good article. Did I mention it maybe um, on the show the last couple of weeks? A good piece on George Michael and the writing of Last Christmas on The Guardian. I, I do recommend that. I think he was about 15 when he wrote that. Number one, of course, Do They Know It's Christmas uh, by Band-Aid. Uh, Deeper Stub uh, is uh, back. I forgot uh, Deeper Stub had submitted uh, another choice for Channel Christmas. He says, my final suggestion for this year's festive channel is Charlie Brooker's White Christmas special of Black Mirror, probably around 2,200 hours of Twisted Tale, which will make Wizard wish it could be Christmas never sound the same again. I've never seen um, Black Mirror. I was never sure what it was, uh, to be honest. just always sceptical about British television these days and I don't often give stuff a chance you know I've just finished the latest run of Peaky Blinders and I thought it was I did not think it was very good the the incessant soundtrack to that show doesn't help I thought there was overacting I think it's one of the shows where you can honestly say the female cast members are of a higher caliber than the male members the female cast members are not overacting but there's a lot of overacting among the men on that show and I, I think that show has dipped significantly since its uh, first series okay so deeper stub uh wants charlie brooker's white christmas special i googled this so black mirror was a british sci-fi anthology series written by uh, charlie brooker uh, first aired on Channel 4 on uh, the 16th of December 2014 and uh, the only TV special of the series it was also the last episode aired on Channel 4 as the series later moved to Netflix Okay. oh John Hamm was in it and looking at the cast John Hamm of Mad Men okay, let's have a look at the rest of this is this the Christmas special the episode starts with two men Matt and Joe Joe, played by Rafe Spall, stationed at a remote outpost in the middle of a snowy wilderness. This must be the Christmas episode, as they tell each other their respective lives to pass the time those events are depicted on screen, forming three mini-stories ultimately relating to the character's current situation. Thank you, uh, Deepest Dub. Now let's uh, move on to a special interview with the kid. The Half-Man Now 30 was arguably the driving force behind my launching this show back in November 2012, 200 episodes ago. I thought, this kid is so quotable, this kid is such a twat that I've got to document this. He, of course, appeared on the Bumper Christmas Annual in 2014, live memorably at a time when even the likes of Jack McEnroy had thought that the uh, kid was made up. And uh, the kid later appeared in episode 100, uh, I think, on which he drew a self-portrait of his torso live on air and the 2015 Bumper Christmas Annual. And here he is again, as we discuss midway through this interview, his unusual birthmark, which I introduced by cocking up the word, for want of a better word, dermatological. 
I suppose we should get this underway because I'm struggling to hold your attention here. I can just see you sort of looking everywhere except the direction of the mic. All right, okay, go ahead and hurry up. Christmas for you, it's not a big thing, is it? I mean, no. you featured on every bumper Christmas annual there is. Yeah. But, but so how do you deal with Christmas when everyone around you is maybe really getting into it? I'll just, I'll just go with the flow. I mean, our team Christmas dinner was all right. Um, I like the fact that some of my team members weren't really into it and I sat amongst the characters in the group. Uh, was Roger there? Roger was sat, on to, was sat to my right and then I had um, a couple of um, old-timers sat opposite me and we had a good laugh, yeah. We had a good laugh and um, it wasn't one of those occasions where everybody got tanked up. Um, a lot of people left after their dinner and um, because they just wanted to get home and I quite liked that. I, I quite liked the fact that there was no pressure on me to stay on when I quite frankly didn't want to. Can you tell us what Roger's plans for Christmas are? Uh, he's just spending it with the family. Um, his wife works in a care home, so um, she's going to be working on the Christmas morning, but they're going to have a dinner afterwards. He gave me a bag yesterday as a Christmas present, like, okay. a, hold, like a holder for my gym stuff. A man bag or a sports bag? A sports bag. That's so, rather generous, isn't it? Yeah, it's because I gave him a Moschino <laughs> Uomo um, uh, um, cologne aftershave. A used one, like you gave no, me a few no, years ago, brand new. No, this was brand new. This was still in the um, polyethylene um, wrapping. I get the impression, though, that this wasn't intended for Roger initially. It's an unwanted gift. If I know you, that was an unwanted <laughs> gift. Is that what happened here? If, if I'm being honest, it was 20 quid from Duty Free. And um, I just really wanted to get him a present. Um, because he's absolutely hilarious. So I it was intended for it Roger? It was intended for me, but I wanted a gift for Roger and I just thought I couldn't be bothered to go out and get one specifically. So um, I just got this one instead. There's a history here, isn't it, that you get the men around you smelling the way you'd like them to smell, the way that you <laughs> once wanted to smell. You move on to the next scent listen, and the guys around listen, you smell like you once did. Listen, I just want people to smell good. And if you smelt Moschino Uomo, you'd understand why. Where did you get this? This was when you were recently coming back into the country? Yeah, this was when I came back. Funnily enough, I went to Morocco again, and funnily enough... More charity work. No, no, this wasn't charity work, but I... Um, uh, I'm not sure if I should say this, but... No, don't say <laughs> okay. it. Let's, let's, uh, let's quickly move on. Uh, can, I, can I just give the... Okay, let's just say I was in Carrefour and I pulled the cashier. And I was on amoxicillin. Um, again? Yeah, again. <laughs> what is it with you? Is, I, is I think it? I'm just prone. Is this like malaria, where it's just in your system? I'm not entirely sure, but it was um, it was quite bad because I was coughing for ages. Roger noticed as well, yeah. and he said, "You've got to get that scene to you." And then I showed him a picture of the uh, cashier that I. Uh... Right. Let's move on very quickly. Yeah. Um, just one final thing on that, actually. Do you not think that you should drop this particular act from your repertoire, given that your body obviously can't handle it? No, because Mickey thinks he's better than me at it. You guys are obsessed and, and with this. And, I'm, and, and I refuse to believe that he's better than me at it. Unless we have a plate off, then, um, you know, I'm going to continue to do it. We do, have, uh, we do have some building work in the background, whether it's police sirens wrecking this show or building work. Uh, yeah. The, the or show me. does just seem to be cursed, <laughs> yes, or yourself. Let's... Um, very quickly, many, many shows ago, yep. because this is the 200th episode of a show that you've yep. never listened to uh, other than when you've been in the studio recording. Yep. You're taking your phone out now. Uh, just, uh, Can we just complete okay, this? Yeah, 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 go on, go on, go on. 
Many, many shows ago, yeah. in the show's early years, yeah. you disclosed the location of a birthmark that was known yeah. only to your parents and myself. Why are you showing me a picture of your naked torso? Can you can you just at least look into the mic? Yeah, go on. Okay. And I was just wondering, as someone who's very curious about yeah. uh, dermatological conditions, <laughs> um, are you curious about this birthmark yourself? Do you stare at it? Are you, just, do you I Google look, it? I look at it every day, but I don't... I don't research on it i just think it's god given you've never been interested in what it might be no it's just a birthmark it's literally there's no bump or bruise it's just a, a black mark on my skin has it over the years because these things they are prone to either expanding or it has, fading it only expands i told you when that certain part of my anatomy expands like an oil spill yeah it just stretches out a little bit in accordance with the actual part <laughs> when it expands does it fade or is the color as strong it's it's hard to tell i've never looked at it when it's expanded because it's just gone in somewhere else i've done some research on this i'd just yeah. like to run three descriptions yeah. by you of what right, it okay, might yeah. be and i want you to tell okay. me which one you think it might okay, be guys. i'm going to start with the one i don't think it is a patch a patch is equal to or greater than either five or ten millimeters across no, that, no, no it's not no, that it's not, it's not a patch <laughs> even when it's expanded even when it's expanded it's probably okay. touching five millimeters right but it's not no it's not anywhere near ten it could be a <laughs> lengthwise it might be ten millimeters it could be a what do you mean lengthwise the, the, the mark um, yeah from top to bottom right yeah so then it could be a patch it could be a patch but i don't think it covers ten millimeters squared Right. Put it like that. Is it a lentine? Which uh, a lentine is a, a darkened skin resulting from exposure to ultraviolet radiation. No, I don't think I've been exposed to ultraviolet okay. radiation. And it can't be an uh, an age spot or a senile freckle because no. you've had it since your very yeah, early days. Yeah, ever since I discovered it, I just noticed it. Yeah. Here's what I think it is. It's yeah. a macule. A macule is a change in surface colour. I think yeah. we'd agree it's a change in yeah, surface colour. Yeah, it's a colour. definite change in surface colour. Uh, does it have any elevation? No elevation. Like I told you, it's just it's smooth okay. with the skin. There's no depression on it if you run your finger across no, it. The, no, no, no. I can't feel any bumps or bruises. Is it well or ill-defined? Is it clear? It's, it's clear in the sense that it's okay. markedly different from the normal, from the rest of my skin colour. Generally considered less than either 5 or 10 millimetre in diameter. At the widest point, how how big is it? At the, at widest, the widest point, point around five millimeters. Okay. Yeah, but in terms of if you go from the from the top to the bottom, it's probably touching ten millimeters. Yeah. All right. I think it's a macule. I can go to my doctor and get it seen. Just have your, you ever been to your doctor's no, for it? it doesn't. I've been I've been for other things relating to that, but that part of my body but I've never actually pointed and say hey what's this yeah well I hope that the last two or three minutes of recording even though you do appear distracted yeah. I hope that that's been <laughs> of interest to you because I am as I say I'm interested in skin conditions and that yeah. is a hell of a skin marking yeah. that you've got it's uh, it's not been of interest to me but I could tell it's of interest to you so I would get it seen to and I will actually read no, I'm not saying that you should get it seen to but I'm yeah. saying obviously it's something that you see every day like it's not yeah. on your back it's not yeah. on the back of your leg or no, something you're no, seeing no, no. it every day I'm aren't seeing you? it every day yeah you know you're going into that cubicle yeah. but with to be a turbo. Fair, I, I see <laughs> yeah turbo you're impressed by that isn't it that's incredible yeah I don't get why you're so impressed I drink a lot of water and yeah. um, you know it's just 
It just comes out with such ferocity. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Yeah. Incredible. Ferocity, right? Yeah. Lastly, um, yeah. I think the last time I spoke <laughs> to you in the summer when you were eating some popcorn and had just turned 30, um, you were telling me you're getting some building work done in yeah. the house. You're telling me that's going a little fraught as we close yeah. fast upon Christmas. Is yeah. that is the end of that building work in sight? The end is in sight. The structural work is complete. The actual loft space has been... Um, skirted up, painted up, although there's finishing touches left. The doors have been put on apart from the flipping handles. And um, yeah, generally it's all right. Before we close this interview, uh, three years ago we were in the uh, studio at yeah. Resonance. You yeah. had your famous on air live clash with Mickey Boyd. Yeah, I killed him. Any Christmas message for Mickey? Well, uh, you know, if Mickey wants to have that plate off, he knows where to Other than the plate oh, off. Okay, yeah, yeah. If he wants to have a deadlift off, you know, pound for pound kind of thing, then, uh, yeah, he's more than welcome to come to my gym. I could come to his. I'll bring the liquid chalk. We can get it on. I did remark to you that you looked like you'd gone up a couple of weight divisions. You've bulked up slightly. Yeah, I bulked up quite a bit. And as you saw from the photo, isn't it? I just saw uh, a bare torso on your phone. I Okay, yeah, I'll send you that photo no, later. No, you don't but, need oh, to right, send okay. it. But, um, yeah, I'm benching more, I'm squatting more, I'm overhead pressing more. Uh, I'm just generally stronger, and with strength comes size. The kid, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, the kid. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. The kid, a man now, really, though uh, I'm not sure that you'd gauge that from the interview. You're listening to Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available bumper Christmas annual 2017 episode 200. Let's have some channel Christmas now. Eops, I want some apre pub weird stuff like when Jonathan Ross presented all those Japanese ghost stories on channel 4. Always ensured the parents went to bed as it was too strange for them and then you can raid the booze cabinet and snack unhindered. During an ad break me and my sister had a cheeky smoke out of the window but I dropped it and uh, it landed on our see-through plastic carport roof. Knowing it would be spotted she held my legs while I reached to recover the roach but we reached tipping point and she couldn't drag me back in. Not sure if that's relevant but I always think of it at uh, Christmas and that is... Well, that's what Christmas is, isn't it? Uh, you know, I think Christmas is as much about the current Christmas as it is about the Christmases of old. The, the, the memories that you have from past Christmases and the people that you shared those Christmases with who may or may not be part of your life now. That's a nice one from Eamon. Merry Christmas, Eamon. Nick MB, friend of the show. I think he's been with the show since the beginning. Uh, Nick wants the him and her Christmas special from a few years ago. That show never fails to cheer me up. Always squalid, yet uplifting. A standard 30-minute sitcom. And if you need to fill another 90 minutes, the Muppet Christmas Carol is on every year at my house. I've only seen the Muppet Christmas Carol once, and I remember being really impressed by it. I was very impressed by it. I remember the original run of the Muppets uh, as a boy, and I just think it, you know, it just came too soon for me. It was such a great show. And when you're looking at shows about shows, you know, Larry Sanders for me, you know, that that that's the best one. Thirty Rock was very good, but the Muppet Show has got to be up there. It's 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 part of that, isn't it? It was a it was a brilliant piece of work. Nick uh, concludes by saying, ideally, uh, he wants him and her on late at night and mid-afternoon uh, for the Muppets, if you use it. Of course, you can have both, Nick, because uh, we're abandoning, for one year only, 
I hope, uh, the uh, channel Christmas time slots. Mad Cat, B.B. Lynch, like Nick, a, a, a guest on this show in the past. I want B.B.'s beautiful baubles, uh, she tweeted. Uh, I was uh, too afraid to uh, Google that. Um, she wants it aired at midnight. Uh, if not, she adds all the uh, Morecambe and Wise uh, special with Andrew Preview. Was it Previn? I'm going to have to Google this. I'm not sure that's right. This is the conductor, isn't it? I think. Am I right? This is a very famous... Actually, I think BB's right. Is it? No, it's Andre Previn. And uh, it was that famous uh, sketch they uh, they did with him. So, uh, you know, we'll throw that in. Thank you, uh, BB and Nick. Merry Christmas to you both. The Nectar Points Leviathan now. Walking into the show like King Kong. Paul S. Davis, he answered my call out. I think only John Welch can compete with Paul in the uh, Nectar Point stakes. I said, didn't I, a couple of shows back that I'd save Paul's email for the uh, bumperish annual. And here it is. Hi, Daniel. After listening to uh, today's podcast, uh, dated 14th of December, on my commute to work, I was shocked to be admonished for not getting in touch. So here I am, typing this email on the man's time, whilst listening to a very dull conference call that I could be contributing more to instead of typing this. First order of business, he says, Channel Christmas. You kindly included my request last year for a Christmas film, but it missed the mark slightly because I didn't really specify my request very well. Uh, Last year, Paul went for You've Got Mail which uh, ate up two hours of the schedules. Uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. You know, I've always struggled with Tom Hanks. For me, he's the Elton John of acting. I know that people love him, but I just can't warm to the guy, and I just, uh, you know, he just doesn't blow me away, really. Uh, Back to Paul, though. It's not about you, David. Remember that. Uh, This year, I have continues Paul I think he means that he's made a better choice this year so my request is again for a Christmas film he says and my suggestion is a wish for Christmas the plot outline is simple downtrodden junior staff member who loves Christmas has amazing Christmas marketing idea her supervisor steals the idea and takes the credit with a big boss who hates Christmas a mysterious Santa grants her one wish for 48 hours she chooses to be strong and confident she confronts the big boss he is impressed and asks her to pitch the idea with a big client the client rearranges meeting to his ski lodge which requires travelling to Big Boss's hometown. Various problems mean they have to stay over in small town. Junior staff member meets Boss's family. Junior staff member finds out reason Big Boss Hates Christmas is a family row many years ago. A pitch is held with a client. Initially it's a disaster but junior staff member turns it round with her new confidence. Junior staff member reunites family and sorts out the row. Both return to the city with Boss's family to spend Christmas. Boss and junior staff member kiss, realise they are in love and live happily ever after. It meets the key mandatory criteria for a cheesy, uplifting and low brain effort required to watch in that unknown actors, low Budget production values, no special effects or CGI, involves someone who lives in a city in a high-powered job returning to their small hometown. One of the characters must hate Christmas at the start and love it by the end. There is always a lonely single person, usually female, who finds love. Must include all Christmas cliches, snow, buying, decorating Christmas tree, drinking hot chocolate, last-minute Christmas shopping for an item that is sold out, unexpectedly having to spend extra time in a place. Agenda item 2A, hand-washing. I'm liking the way Paul's broken this email down. 
I have good news, he says, for the future of hand washing. Based on my daughter's school, it seems that we are raising a generation of compulsive hand washers. My daughter is in reception class, age four, and at a recent parents' evening, I spotted two posters in the classroom saying, we wash our hands after going to the toilet. We wash our hands after lunch and snack time. We wash our hands after outdoor learning or play. We wash our hands after messy learning or art time. You know what? I think I should have been born now. I was born ahead of my time. I like this. I like this hand-washing plan. So, Paul says, assuming two trips to the toilet, one lunch, two snack times, three play times, and one outdoor or messy learning time per day, I make that washing hands nine times in uh, one school day. Now, I don't know how much experience you have of helping four-year-olds wash their hands, but it is not a quick process. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. I'm glad that my imaginary son is now nine and uh, he's pretty strong on the hand washing, but I do remember when he was younger, it was uh, it was a pain getting him to wash his hands. On the plus side, says uh, Paul, my daughter has clean hands and good hygiene. On the negative side, I worry that there is actually any time left for teaching. Agenda item 2B, hand washing 2. A recent weekend trip to Copenhagen threw me into a DRT-style panic. The Danish seem to have curious sanitary wear arrangement in their public toilets airport, restaurants, museums, etc., where they have a hand basin and soap and towels in each cubicle with a toilet and in the area outside the cubicle, even if there are no urinals. So you, you, you've got to go into the cubicle. That's uh, compulsory. That's, that's unusual. So where, asks Paul, do I wash my hands? In the cubicle. Where, if I meet someone in the area outside the cubicle, they will see me walk straight past the sink there and think that I have not washed my hands. Or outside the cubicle, where if someone is waiting for the cubicle and goes in straight after me, they will notice the sink is dry and assume I have not washed my hands. Should I wash my hands twice, what would you do? Let's try and break this down. So they have a hand basin and soap and towels in each cubicle with a toilet and in the areas outside the cubicle. So there's no urinals. Okay. Okay. Right, okay, I get this. So you've got the option of washing your hands in the cubicle or outside the cubicle. So if you wash them in the cubicle, Paul's saying, what if I meet someone in the area outside the cubicle? They'll see me walk straight past the sink there and think I've not washed my hands. Okay, I get this now, or outside the cubicle. I think, you know, I think what I might do before I exit the cubicle, I'll just make sure I run the tap for a bit so the uh, sink in the cubicle looks wet, is wet, but I would wash my hands outside the cubicle. So I do, you know, I do a bit of one, but I would wash my hands outside of the cubicle. I think that's the way I'd get around that. Hopefully, Paul, if you if you're off on any more Scandinavian uh, trips, you might be able to uh, pilot that and see how that works for you. Uh, agenda item three, and and you know this is where this guy comes into his own. This this guy is a monster when it comes to nectar points. This is extraordinary. Paul's current balance is 22,145 points, which is worth £110.73. Remember, there was that nectar points restructuring a couple of years ago. Um, Paul says, lower than the balance I reported last year because I've been spending points. Two transactions at Argos, one for 15,500 uh, points, which is uh, £77.50, and one for 26,000 points, £130. So that's a total of 41,500 points. I'd love to see the facial expressions of the cashiers when he's handing over that Nectar card. I'd love to see that.
These are the first and only times I've spent points, so since the Nectar scheme started in 2002, I was an early adopter, he adds, I've collected 63,645 points, a not insubstantial sum, but there are many people who collect more than me. I know you had concerns when the scheme changed a couple of years ago, half the points were awarded per pound spent, but it has worked out well for me, he says, as I get many more bonus offers, so I think my collecting rate has overall gone up. Good work on the podcast, as always, I have been greatly enjoying it regards Paul Paul your handful of contributions to this show uh, quickly elevated you to the status of a legendary listener and uh, that email was no less than I expected Merry Christmas to you and uh, your family uh, your family of hand washers great stuff there from Paul You're listening to Daniel Ruiz Tyson is available. Bumper Christmas Annual 2017. I'm going with bumper. Uh, you know, this is a bumper annual. It's not bumperish. I've gone with a bumper. I've delivered the bumper and we're not even finished yet. This is the show that sweats the small stuff because the small stuff does matter. Ways to support the show. You can do all your Amazon shopping by clicking on the Amazon referral link at danielruiztyson.com. Amazon recognises you've gone to them via the referral link on my site and kicks back a small percentage of whatever you've purchased back to my work. It doesn't cost you a thing. And, uh, you know, if you're doing any shopping, any shopping after Christmas, any sales shopping, and it's online, and if you are using Amazon, do please try and remember to go via the uh, referral link at danielruiztizen.com. Further ways to support the show, even though the series ends today, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Just uh, four more reviews uh, gleaned on this 25-part uh, run. It's uh, it's disappointing. And, uh, you know, reviews and ratings do make a difference to the show's visibility in the store. And uh, hit that subscribe button, whether via iTunes or the RSS feed or your platform of choice. Do please hit that subscribe button. And perhaps you might even consider making a secure donation to the podcast via the PayPal link at Daniel Brewers Tyson. Also, do remember Daniel Ruiz Tyson's advent calendar available at holdfastnetwork.com and iTunes 2. That finishes today on Christmas Eve. Episode 22 went out on Friday. Probably my favourite episode uh, of the series because it uh, covers one of the greatest days of my life. Uh, the day when uh, the big television and teletext finally came uh, to the uh, family bedsit on the 22nd of December 1989, a Friday, and uh, this year, 22nd of December, was also uh, coincidentally a Friday, and uh, that episode is dedicated to my oldest friend, Neil Jenkins, whose uh, story you heard at the start of the year on this show. Neil uh, is fighting multiple sclerosis. This really is a fight for his life. This might be his uh, last Christmas um, Hard to tell. I think the family have now raised about forty-two thousand pounds of the ninety thousand needed to uh, get Neil to Israel for emergency uh, treatment, uh, emergency stem cell treatment. Um, they are considerably behind on that. I don't forget uh, the part my old friend played in making the twenty-second of December, nineteen eighty-nine, one of the uh, greatest days of my life. Do uh, listen to that episode uh, if you can, and uh, follow uh, Neil on Twitter at Get Neil Walking for all the updates on uh, his uh, very 
very serious uh, situation. Merry Christmas to you, Neil, and uh, to your family. Some very quick Christmas Eve memories uh, for me now. I've just bullet-pointed them and see what I can tell you about them. Uh, 2009 Christmas Eve, get into North London to see a next. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve, I think, maybe only for the second time in my life. Uh, you know, a real postcard Christmas, very unusual. And um, I just remember the difficulty of getting to their house because they had steps leading up to the front door. And it was so icy, and I think there were about six or seven steps, and it took me 15 minutes to uh, reach the front door. And I was wearing boots as well with a decent grip on them, but I just could not get up those stairs because of the ice, and I was just hauling myself up the banisters. That was just a, that was a bizarre, bizarre moment. That really was... Uh, 1987 Christmas Eve, Midnight Mass, the last time I think I went to Midnight Mass, and more importantly to me as someone who once wanted to be a priest, the last time I took Holy Communion, that was the Christmas of uh, the Pogues and Kirsty McCall, fairy tale in New York. I remember I went to Midnight Mass with my one of my oldest friends, uh, Richard. I think Marcus might have been there too. They both lived on Atherfoldy Dog Splattered Road round the corner from Mayflower. I remember watching EastEnders earlier that evening. I think Sharon Watts, with her massive head, uh, was dating some vicar at the time. I just remember that being a really lovely Christmas Eve. I bought my first uh, hi-fi that year, £300 from Dixon. My dad came with me. Uh, Dixon's in Clapham Junction and I think the first song I played on that was uh, Freddie Mercury and Montserrat Caballier Barcelona and uh, had uh, twin cassette decks that was just massive for its time I was so happy with that I, I loved that uh, stereo and that was uh, the first big thing I spent with my Saturday boy money after joining Woolworths earlier that year 1975 the last Christmas in the old bedsit at Mayflower Road number 41 uh, which uh, had once belonged to Frederick Abilene one of the uh, detectives leading the hunt for the uh, Jack the Ripper murders in uh, Whitechapel in 1888 we had a small silver Christmas tree but what I remember is there was this Spanish custom I think it's still done and uh, my mum would do so much to convince us that Father Christmas really existed. She'd pull away the um, drawers from the uh, chimney to make space for Father Christmas, but also she'd leave, and this is a Spanish custom, the children's shoes on the windowsill, so the window would be lifted up slightly, the windows, uh, sash window, and a wedge down on the shoes, the idea being to let uh, Father Christmas know the sex of each child. And I do remember that. And I think my youngest sibling had fallen asleep. My dad was at work and I was in bed. Uh, I was in my mum's bed. And I remember being really concerned about the shoes on the windowsill and trying to make sure that Father Christmas knew that I was a boy because I desperately wanted my uh, Planet of the Apes doll, which I think was, it was either Galen or Cornelius the name of the chimp, and it was the one played by Roddy McDowell, and I did get him, I did get the doll, but I remember being really concerned that I wouldn't get it, and at some point, obviously, I fell asleep, and my mum would have put me in my own bed, so that's a really early, early memory. Then we move forward a year or two, either 76, which would have been the unwrapped Christmas uh, covered in the Advent Calendar series, or it might have been in 1977, 
the neighbor's dad, our, our first landlord, who from number 41 Mayflower, taking uh, his kids and us to Trafalgar in the back of his blue Volvo, and uh, which he later swapped for a yellow Volvo. We'd always travel in the back of the car, no seat belts, how times have changed. Might have been the year too that uh, uh, my face had been forked or scratched by my sibling. Uh, they'd scratched me one year, then they forked me another year. But uh, there are a bunch of pictures from one of those Christmases where I've got this massive scratch, I think, on my uh, right cheek. And I just remember being blown away by the Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square. You know, being four or five years old and being absolutely um, blown away by that. And I remember vividly the shop on the corner, Whitehall and Trafalgar, which is now a Sainsco Metro local. And every time I pass that place, I do remember that night. I remember just, just because it's the only shop around there that you can see from the square, I think, from the angle that we were at. And uh, that was special because pretty soon after that, it became clear that I had a problem with uh, birds. Uh, so Trafalgar Square for me, up until I think I hit 27, 28, when Ken Livingston banned pigeon feed at Trafalgar Square. You know, Trafalgar Square was an absolute no-go for me, except at night. Christmas Eve 93, that was another memorable one. The Space Daddy came back home from Liverpool University. I can't remember what I'd been doing during the day. I think I'd been at college, and uh, we might have broken up by then, but I met up with the Space Daddy in the evening after most of the shops had closed. He'd been charged with finding the Christmas turkey for his family dinner. Uh, He'd completely forgotten about it. It was after six. He was panicking. We went everywhere looking for one. We ended up in Brixton Market around uh, 20, 100 hours. Butchers were shuttering up by then. There was one butchers who uh, let us in under the shutter. It was horrific in there. There was one turkey left. You would not have eaten that turkey if you'd seen it. The uh, space daddy didn't care by then. Got the turkey. Uh, we then retired to the Coach and Horses, now inevitably the Phoenix, uh, just at the top of Mayflower Road on Clapham Road, the road where I lived, even to this day, for what amounts to most of my life. And I remember asking the Space Daddy over Christmas, how was the turkey? And he just said, it was gorgeous. Typical uh, Space Daddy. A uh, quick hygiene fail as I round this year's bumper Christmas annual and the series up a locker at the man's because we've all got lockers now you know we're hot desking we've got to collect our stuff every morning from the lockers and bring it back in the evenings Uh, there was a locker left open all day for some reason I'm not sure what the idea behind that was it was rammed inside that locker there were a pair of shoes left on top of a bunch of paperwork shoes should be in a bag they're in your locker put them in a bag I've got a pair of shoes in my locker they're in a bag I don't put them on top of anything it's uh, well they're in the bag The bag goes on top of my paperwork. Not a problem, but they're in the bag. That's where they belong. Uh, A fleeting visit to the cafe before I go. I'm still over uh, tipping in there. I'll come to that uh, in a minute. Friday, 22nd of December. A long writing session in there that morning. Unwashed hands, exiting the cafe loose. You know, that visual is just on a loop. Horrendous. You know, it's not a a community that values hand washing. I don't think that's going to change in my lifetime. There was a guy with his girlfriend in there. I was live tweeting this. Uh, They were both laughing after every single thing either of them was saying. I'm always suspicious of the laugh too easily types. And, uh, you know, recently there's been a a new person starting at the man's. And, uh, you know, I always think of what my opening dialogue is with people. You know, I'm not a spontaneous guy. 
So, um, you know, I'm too awkward for that. And uh, I made them laugh, but I became aware that they laugh very easily. They're, you know, they were laughing at stuff other colleagues were saying. And I was thinking, well, was that funny? Are they being funny? I think, you know, I'm always suspicious of people that just laugh very easily. I think it's hard to work out how funny you might be when you're around the laugh too easy. I think you should have to work for the laughs. And they were in there for an hour. The laughs were constantly flowing. If I was one half of that couple, I'd have to say, we need to talk. I'm a funny guy, but I don't think I'm that funny. In fact, even the funniest people I know aren't that funny. Hoping these guys uh, were leaving so I could just concentrate on my work, but they just did not go at uh, 0900 hours. They decided to stay for another coffee, which led to more inexplicable laughing. Observing uh, this uh, laugh-too-easy young couple, I came to the conclusion that they probably needed to stay together for life because, you know, what are the chances of meeting another laugh-too-easy partner? If they were to split, each would go into their next relationship hopelessly overconfident in their ability to make others laugh, which, you know, is the equivalent, I suppose, of an upcoming fighter going into the ring with carefully picked bums and later going into a title fight deluded and just being out of their depth. On to the lack of 10p coins. I'm just finishing the year without a single 10p coin among my change. And I've tried everything to get my hands on 10p pieces. Those self-checkouts at these Sainz Co. Metro locals, they really give you 10 pence. They just spit out change. I bought a banana in one on a Thursday morning. I tried to trick it. And, you know, those places charge more for bananas, 20p for a single. You can get two bananas for about 23 to 27 pence in the Nine Elms Monster. But, uh, you know, I wasn't going to get there in time. I put in five uh, two-pence pieces, then I inserted a 20-pence piece, hoping I'd get a 10-pence coin back, or at least two five-ps. Instead, the machine just spacked back the five two-ps I'd just given it. You can't trick these machines. It's like they're wagging their finger at you. No, my friend, no, you can't try it with me. So, you know, I'm still over-tipping in the cafe. This time of year in there, I... Do remember the importance of the cafe in my life at Christmas. You know, Christmas Eve 2009 was a big one after Lopez had died. I began a script that day that had taken me three months to prepare intensely because I hadn't been able to write after Lopez had died. I hadn't been able to write that whole year. Um, you know, my life had, uh, had collapsed on a, a personal uh, level and uh, Lopez had got sick and, uh, you know, I was making a ridiculous long commute. I was living in the sticks for part of the year and uh, then it became apparent that Lopez wasn't going to pull through. So, you know, it was a period of preparing yourself for that, for adjusting to, to, to life without a guy that had been in my life for almost 30 years. 2009, Christmas Eve. I went to the cafe with all my stuff. I was travelling to North London later that day and I just sat there and began working and that was a very important writing session for me. A year later, in fact, the night before Christmas Eve, uh, a breakup, sitting on my own in the cafe for five hours, calling the space daddy as I walked back to the hotel one last time, approaching midnight after leaving the cafe and it was the space daddy who told me to keep on walking towards the sun those were his words that you hear at the end of every show and uh, they're important words to me they're words that I never forgot because I remember where I was when I first heard them this time of year in the cafe I do always uh, remember those two particular uh, Christmases more than any uh, we'll be back in the cafe at some point in uh, 2018 let's round up this year's channel Christmas submissions 
and that let's round them up in strong fashion with the overfed. Uh, not traditionally festive, Stuart begins, but I will be scheduling Tales from the Crypt. Five strangers get separated from the main group. They find themselves in a room with a mysterious crypt keeper who details how each of them will die. The first tale features Joan Collins being terrorised by Father Christmas. There's more, of course, but I can't ask you to schedule the Likely Lads Porridge and an endless stream of old horror movies every year. I think we had some Likely Lads and Porridge last year, didn't we? We had about three, four shows from uh, about 1974 that were in our channel Christmas listings. Stuart also submitted another horror film, The Haunting, from 1962. A paranormal researcher invites a small group of people to a mansion... I wonder if I've seen this. I've got a. I think I might have seen this uh, at Christmas time, in fact. Let's see what's coming up on Google. Is this the right film? An anthropologist with an interest in psychic uh, phenomena takes two specially selected women to Hill House, a reportedly haunted mansion. Julie Harris plays a lonely, eccentric woman with a supernatural event in her past, and the bold Theodora, played by Claire Bloom, who has ESP. Uh, joins her they are immediately overwhelmed by strange sounds and events and Eleanor comes to believe the house is alive and speaking directly to her I think Stuart is in good company here I think it was the space daddy maybe about 10 years ago maybe longer who first put me onto this film it must be that same film I think it's widely regarded as one of the great horrors and uh, Stuart I know is a big fan of horror Duck Soup Stuart uh, submits next. I should have... uh, I just ran out of time to do this uh, research uh, before the the recording. Let's see what this is. Duck Soup. Okay, this is a Marx Brothers film. I didn't know that. When the tiny nation of Fredonia goes bankrupt, its wealthy benefactor insists that the wacky Rufus T. Firefly, played by Groucho Marx, becomes the country's president. Okay, so that's from 1933, The Big Sleep, uh, 1946. That's also in there. And uh, Stuart's last submission, A Chump at Oxford, Laurel and Hardy, 1940 film. That's 62 minutes long. I love Laurel and Hardy to this day. I just, I think they are the masters. Stuart and I, and uh, most of you listeners, I suspect, were of that generation that grew up with three channels and BBC Two's early evening scheduling in the uh, early 80s was magnificent. 20 to 6, they'd always show black and white shorts, Laurel and Hardy, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd. I remember being seven or eight years old and the kids at school actually talking about these the next day. Laurel and Hardy brought my family together. The fighting would actually stop during those 20 minutes. You know, like that fictitious story about British soldiers and German soldiers uh, stopping fighting uh, in the trenches one Christmas uh, during the First World War. And every so often, even better, BBC Two would throw in a double bill of Laurel and Hardy. And I still dig out their old shorts on uh, YouTube. And I just love those guys. Uh, You know, Stan Laurel, for me, an absolute genius. You won't find the overfed much on Twitter these days, which is a shame because his threads were always outstanding. But you can still dig out Stuart's work. He's a fat man on a couch columns from the Please Don't Hug Me shows at com, which give you a flavour of the man's work. One of only a handful of people who could get me reading Twitter. And uh, I hope that Stuart doesn't mind me saying he could have done so much with his writing. It's that good. Merry Christmas to you, Stuart. Uh, so that is it. 
Maybe next year's Channel Christmas will be a complete list-in with running times, as it has always been until now. I think we did okay in the end. We got something together. We made do with what we had. I'm relieved to be done with uh, this show. It's been such a tough winter, and you know the worst weather-wise is yet to come. I've got to get some boots before January arrives. Uh, not a single offer on soft-baked biscuits either, which has been very disappointing. The quiet mastication audio they offer would be much welcomed by me at the man's, though the foil packaging would be a problem, as I've said. You know, that would turn heads. That's the kind of audio that does turn heads. You'd feel you might have to offer the biscuits out. There's only four or five, I think, in a box. It's not the kind of biscuit you offer out, is it, really? It's a prestige biscuit. I think the etiquette is you turn down the prestige biscuit if it's offered to you. For instance, I bought... A pack of 45p malted biscuits in the Nine Elms Monster a couple of weeks back. Terrible quality. I offer them out. The biscuit quality is poor. You take a bite, it's like someone smashed a biscuit in your mouth. But when I offer them out at the man's, I'm unusually flamboyant with my offering gestures. Colleagues might turn them down initially, hoping for the second offer to come their way. I make the second offer. The biscuits are worthless. I don't want to offer the soft-baked biscuits. I think... When I finally find a soft-baked biscuit off, and I hope I do, I think what I would do, I would pile it inserting one into a sandwich bag, which are far quieter than the foil. So I'd remove them from their loud foil packaging, I'd stick them in a sandwich bag to see how it impacts on the biscuit. It might age the soft-baked biscuit, you know, there might be a reason it's in the foil. You know, having put it into a sandwich bag, I might reach into my bag, open the sandwich bag and find the biscuit all shriveled up like the female astronaut at the start of the original Planet of the Apes film. But I think it's a worthwhile experiment. It's something that I would like to try. I'd just be loath to go into the office with the soft-baked biscuits all foiled up. And it's important to me that I find them because I think it's a... It's an effective appetite suppressant. There's so much to that biscuit. It's a good, good biscuit. It will stifle the grumbles. If the sandwich bag ruse doesn't work, then I'll just take a foil package biscuit, slip it into my coat pocket and eat the biscuit outside of the man's, you know, a five-minute stroll around uh, Victoria before returning to the man's. I'm conscious that I've outdone myself with the moaning during this uh, run of 25 shows. It is the attritional way of recording that does me in. And until I find a simpler way of doing this show, now that I've reached that 200 mark that I was keen to nail for reasons God only knows, I've got to consider how I make this process much easier. New equipment, that's a given. Uh, A proper mic, a mixing desk. Although I tried a mixing desk and a proper mic back in 2011 and neither myself nor my friend and the show's go-to IT man, Martin, you know, neither of us could get that working. And uh, if he can't get technical stuff working, there is a problem. And in the end, I ended up getting a refund. But I'm assuming that those are issues that can be overcome. But even if I can record right onto my laptop, which, you know, would help a lot, there is the issue of living on a main road. Noise is always going to be a problem. It takes too long to edit the noise out. And, uh, you know, this show, it just deserves to be better from show 44 to i think 109 or 110 the radio era the show reached a very high level but now i'd actually say available as where kidcott was back in late 86 victoria principal had of course walked away in january 86 so let's draw parallels with her leaving kidcott and uh, my walking away from the radio feb 86 sam fox comes in as principal's replacement sam fox is me going back to podcasting in january 2016 a full storm Told by everyone I spoke to, podcasting is the future. 
the radio people, they're not promoting your work, go back to podcasting. It's been a, a rocky transition. It's not one I've pulled off. The difference is Kidcott pulled through its difficult time. It was stabilised by the arrival of Don Johnson in late 86, just before he released his first single, Heartbeat, which I maintain is a fine song. I just want to I just want to say that. But Johnson's arrival helped the show pull through. Fox won an Emmy in 88 as she finally overcame her doubters. There has been no Don Johnson moment for this show. It's been a really tough two years with hundreds of hours poured into it. It doesn't work, not for me. The show needs to find its Don Johnson moment because this show needs to be what it could be, what it should be. I need to find a way of just being able to record it straight onto the laptop, edit from that, upload it, forget about it. So that's not possible right now. So I don't know when I'll be back. It won't be soon, I know that. I knew that back in the spring, you know, back then I knew that I was starting with a man imminently. I didn't fully expect recording around a day job would be so difficult. That's just me, because I hadn't recorded in such a way for years. I was working for myself for a number of years, so I could incorporate the show into my ordinary working day for some years. And even if I wanted to continue doing the show, which I don't, I have to be honest, because it's too difficult a way of working, and I want to enjoy working. Whatever I do, I want to enjoy it. So uh, it's, it's not coming back anytime soon, and I am genuinely sorry about all the moaning. Uh, I'm sure it can get tiresome your end. It is for me just recognising that this show needs a complete overhaul on the technical side. That means money. There are other things I need to get that have to be a priority. I'm just disappointed that I never look forward to making this show. And that's how it's felt since the radio era ended. You know, the adrenaline isn't there. The nervousness isn't there. I feel like I'm going through the motions. You know, I don't have the time checks. I'm not in the studio. Uh, You know, I'm not trying to get everything into 30 minutes so podcasting I don't feel like I'm a I don't feel it's me you know I don't feel it's me and that's that's it that's been the problem the last couple of years with this show nevertheless I go into 2018 optimistic full of coffee and hope my script and I've not had enough of these moments with it because it's been such a tough year but I do know now that it is a brilliant piece of work it should be it's taken me long enough despite that I know that in this industry that's not enough i wrote a brilliant book completed at the start of 2016 and you know of course yes i'm saying my work is brilliant but i also hold my hand up there were times i didn't turn out brilliant work and yet i got paid for work that i didn't think was among my best work i still got paid so it just shows how the industry works Uh, the book completed at the start of 2016 i turned down two bad deals for it. I didn't want to crowdfund it either. That was another option. You know, crowdfunding makes me uncomfortable. I think it's unfair for writers to have everyone know how much money is in a project. It takes you away from the work itself. You're having to offer too many things to your backers. And I think that does affect your work. I think every crowdfunded project is affected by that, by the amount of time they then have to spend giving stuff away to their backers. This year, I remember an editor at a big publisher got in touch. They loved the book. They apologised for rejecting it because they couldn't convince more senior editors to take a punt on it, and they said they didn't want to send another standard rejection. They asked uh, if I would send the second half of the book to them because they enjoyed it so much and wanted to see how it concluded. You know, And I thought, well, I'm not getting nothing out of this, but I think this person's got some integrity about them. You can see that in the way that they have approached me. You never know where they might be in 10, 15 years' time. I know where I'll be. You know, if I'm still around, I'll be in the care home. But, uh, you know, maybe they'll come and find me after launching their new publishing venture and the uh, book is finally published. 
just as I'm about to leave this world. Then uh, after reading that second half of the book, and it is a big, big book, they emailed again, which I wasn't expecting. They emailed again to say how absorbed they had been by the book. So things like that, though ultimately they lead to nothing. Those emails showed me that I wasn't mad when I wrote it. And that is it. That is today's show. That is the series. I hope you guys enjoy your Christmas and do what you do well. You can only do your best. Shoulders back, people. Keep on walking towards the sun. I'm Daniel Ruiz Tyson, and this winter I have been available. Merry Christmas. Vamos todos a reír.